that we've been preaching through for close to a year. It, it, it really, you know, could have been done in four weeks, but I took my time to really, you know, squeeze out the juice, as Paul likes to say, um, out, of, out of what is here. Uh, there's so much in Colossians. And after we're done with Colossians, we're going to do Philemon, which is a very small book, and it is a companion book to the book of Colossians, and uh, we'll begin that shortly. So the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving And at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, this great privilege of prayer, that we can take everything to you in prayer, We can cast our burdens upon you because you do care for us and you love us. I pray now, O Lord, just as the apostle even prayed, that you would help me to declare the mystery of Christ, that I would preach your word, your will, and that I would do so with clarity and conviction. I pray, O Heavenly Father, your Holy Spirit would carry me along and they would use me as a vessel of honor to declare your praise. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would illuminate the text to each and every one of us. Instruct us in your ways. May may our hearts be teachable and moldable. May we be bent to your will. We pray that our stubbornness and our sinfulness, O Lord, would be broken and that we would be humble followers of you, Jesus. Forgive us of our sins that we've sinned in this past week. We pray now that through the ministry of the word, we be cleansed and renewed and sanctified. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have, in these last few verses, verses 2 through 6, um, the final part of the body of the letter of Paul's writing to the church of Colossae. From verse 7 on, they will be final greetings and benedictions, and then we will close out that book. It is a letter, and so in that letter, we're finishing up the main body of the letter. And in that portion of the body, we are concluding the imperatives, right? Paul's letters usually start uh, in in describing the glories of God and theology and doctrine, um, and then he moves on to the ethical and moral imperatives, what it is in light of the, the theological indicatives, how we're to live our lives. And it's an interesting way he ends his letter. He ends his letter with a very Simple challenge, and that is for the church to be devoted to prayer. Very simple challenge, but indeed a challenge it is. Not only does he invoke them to a deeper prayer life, but he's asking specifically for them to pray for him, for his gospel ministry, for his apostolic ministry, for his mission to the Gentiles. And so this is, if we can put it this way, a prayer request. And so we have a prayer request by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Colossae. It's a personal prayer request, but it calls to mind what we should be praying for, not only for, as Paul is with the Lord now, but for ministers of the gospel, but for all of us 
in terms of having an open door for the gospel. And so today, we're going to be talking a lot about prayer. And I guess the first question that comes to mind is, what is prayer? Now, prayer to different people mean different things. If you come from a more uh, 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 traditional background, or if you come from a Roman Catholic background, we, you could follow the certain prayers that you're taught to pray to uh, Mary or, or the saints, or if you're from an Anglican background, you have an actual book of prayer that you follow. But prayer is much more than that. Prayer is our means of direct communication to God. Means It is the means by which we can speak to him, that we could share our heart's desires, and we could cast our cares upon him, and we can open ourselves to the Lord. And that's a truth that I think so many people don't grasp, is that we have direct access to God. You do not have to go through a priest or a saint or anyone. You go directly to God through Jesus Christ. We have a line to the, to the one who is sovereign over the whole universe. Now, I want you to think about that because often it is said it's not what you know that's important. It's who you know, right? If you want a job with a certain company, if you know the right people, someone makes a phone call to someone in high places and you get the position you want, right? Um, if you need a favor with something and you know someone who works for a company that can help get you and expedite you in a situation, we, you make that phone call to someone who is in a high place, Think about this. We have the greatest connection in the world. We have the connection to God, the Father, the Lord, the sovereign creator of the universe, the Lord of lords and king of kings. He bends the heart of the king to his will. There is not one maverick molecule in the universe. God is completely sovereign over everything, and we have direct access to him, and he listens to us, and he cares about us, and he takes our requests seriously. That is a privilege, and it is an honor and so with that said, we enter in with this, into this discussion of prayer with a definition. Question 98 in the Westminster Catechism tells us prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of the Spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. This is precisely what Paul is describing here. It's offering up our desires to God, and that is important. That's the key phrase, because who else can we offer our desires up to? And who else really cares to listen to us? No one cares more for us than God. No one ever will care for us more than God. Now, when you think about it, God has said all he's ever needed to say to us in his word. Anything God wants to communicate to us is contained in the volume of scripture and if we fail to understand it it's not because god didn't speak clearly it's because we didn't study his word enough and search the scripture enough but god has spoken very clearly and his word is sufficient but at the same time our communication to god is ongoing we speak to god daily we present our joys our delights we present our sorrows and griefs and he listens to us and that's the confidence we have that we are no longer facing a throne of judgment, but the scripture says we can come boldly to the throne of grace and seek mercy in an hour of need. It is a great resource, it is a privilege, and it is a tremendous benefit that every person who is born again in the spirit, who's been redeemed by Christ and is part of the new creation has. Now, I make it clear, if you're not a Christian, if you're not born of the Spirit, and you do not belong to Christ, you do not have this privilege. You do not have this benefit. 
You need to be born again. You need to come into a right relationship with Christ because Jesus said there is no way to the Father but through him. Your good works are not good enough and and the saints cannot get you there and Mary certainly will not intercede on your behalf. There is only one who will intercede on your behalf and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must come to him and you must believe that he is the Lord, that he's risen from the dead, that he died for your sins and through him you could pray. And that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name is that you have direct access to God the Father. And so... It's in that light, it's with that knowledge that Paul exhorts the church, he challenges the church to be devoted to prayer. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, or as the translations, be devoted to prayer. In fact, there are three different descriptions here that Paul tells us in our approach to prayer. We're to be devoted. We're to be steadfast in prayer, number one. Number two, we're to be watchful in prayer. And number three, we're to be thankful in prayer. These are the three descriptors of of our approach to prayer. And the first is devotion, to be steadfast. And what this is talking about is that prayer needs to be a priority in our life it needs to be a priority it is not something that should be uh, something that we do only when we feel like it it should not be something we only do when in a crisis but prayer needs to be a priority that characterizes our daily lives it characterizes our attitude it characterizes our spiritual discipline it means that we're to be committed to prayer it's a discipline and it's and it's a it's a part of our spiritual life I mean, I want you to think about this. You're in a relationship with God and, and with any relationship, if you're not talking to someone, that mean, that's not a good sign. It means you're out of fellowship. They're out of sync. There's a, a broken relationship. And in the same way, it indicates our relationship with God if we're not communicating with him regularly. What is wrong? Something is in the way. And we need to find out what that is that's in the way, whatever that sinful uh, inhibition is, and repent of it move it or it could just simply be a distraction that we're too busy with the with the busyness of life i spoke to claudia this morning we were discussing over breakfast i said how much i just hate cell phones i wish the iphone was never invented i think the iphone is the worst thing that ever happened to the human race i think it's did something to our brain chemistry it's done something to our attention spans even if you never had adhd you will have adhd with the advent of the iphone so much so that Steve Jobs would never let his kids touch one because he knew the destructive nature of what it could do to someone. And how much of our lives are devoted to our iPhones instead of devoted to prayer? How many of our our lives are devoted to social media instead of devoted to prayer? You see, God moves when his people are devoted to prayer. Acts 2.42 tells us that when the church first started, they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted, among other things, the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread. And what was happening? God was moving. Thousands of people were being saved. There was revival. God was at work in his community. And so this is why it says to us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 also to pray without ceasing. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be continually in prayer, to be steadfast in prayer? Does that mean I, I, I mean, does that mean I just stay on my knees for 12 hours a day and just pray? I mean, if that's the case, we have to quit our jobs. We have to not have families. And 
And I guess the monks took this literally and they went into monasteries and literally prayed for 12 to 15 hours a day. We might all just pack our bags and move to a monastery if that's the meaning of this text. But I do not think that that's what God is telling us. I don't believe that that's what God is telling us because if it is, none of us would be able to function. Being devoted to prayer is not so much actually physically and audibly praying all day long, but it means that we pray often and we pray with discipline. It also means it's a mindset. Praying continually, praying without ceasing means that we could be in prayer and fellowship and communion with God without actually being physically in our knees and praying audibly. This is something that the mystics understood. Brother Lawrence, if you ever read his book on the discipline of the presence of God, it's a fantastic book. He was a cook in a monastery, and he says that he would be in constant communion with God, even while washing the dishes and cooking for all of the people. He was in communion with God. He was meditating on God. He was speaking to God within the inward recesses of his heart. George Mueller, who was known for being a bastion and an example of prayer, who's written books on it, says this, I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk about, when I lie down, and when I rise up, and the answers are always coming. And if you've never read his biography, I encourage you to do it. It's one of the most encouraging biographies i ever read. This was a man who never asked for one red cent in his ministry, And God, he would always go to the Lord in prayer, and God always provided for him. He opened orphanages all throughout London. He is known even to this day as as one of the the vanguards and one of the, the people who had great foresight and pioneers for taking care of orphans in the 19th century. It was a big problem in London. And he did it all through the power of prayer. The man never did a fundraiser, never asked anyone for a penny. God provided everything through prayer. And so it's an attitude. It's, a, it's an attitude that we're committed into this priority to be in communion with God. And it also means that we're persistent and unrelenting. You see, lots of times we may give up in prayer. And I know I've given up in prayer. I know I've thrown in the towel on certain issues because it just feels like God's not hearing me. I pray on this repeatedly over and over and over. And God doesn't seem to answer. Why, Lord? And how many times I speak to other Christians and maybe it's a physical infirmity and you say, but, but, but I've been praying for this for years and God just doesn't seem to answer. Or maybe it's a parent with a wayward child and, and I'll never forget a woman called me so many years ago from, from Nevada and she says, my daughter's been rebelling against the Lord for 20 years and I plead with the Lord hours every day. God saved my daughter and he doesn't answer. And, and we could be frustrated and we could be uh, and, and, and crippled sometimes and, and our faith can be tested and tried but we have to remember we need to be persistent and unrelenting and the Lord taught us this in a parable in Luke chapter 18 verse one verse, verses 1 through 8 he says this he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, but because this widow keeps bothering me, 
I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Here is an unjust judge, a man who was wicked. He had no fear of God, and he had no respect for his fellow man, the worst kind of human being you could think of. But because the widow persisted in her request and persisted and persisted, she basically nagged him to death until she got what she wanted. And it worked. There's an old expression, right? The squeaky door gets oil. But in the same way here, we're talking about God. He is not like an unrighteous person. God is righteous. Jesus says, if if you ask your father in this world for a, a, a fish, will he give you a serpent? No. How much more the heavenly father wants to give good things to those who ask him. And so Jesus told in this parable, so his disciples, so that we would not lose heart. It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to feel like giving up. But we have to remember something, that God is a good God, and he cares about us, and he wants to answer our prayers. He wants to give us the things we ask for, but sometimes it's not always the way we want. And so with that, I want to give us a few reasons Because there are times where we may pray and we may plead and we're like, where's the power? Where's the answer? I don't see it. Well, I want to give you several reasons and and purposes and we can go on about this of why God may not be answering our prayer right away. Or it may appear like God's answering. Number one, who are we to assume that God ought always to do what we ask when we ask, and precisely in the way we ask. Let me repeat that. Who are we to assume or presume that God ought to do always what we ask, when we ask, and precisely in the way we ask? Do we think we're sovereign? Do we think that God's a genie in a bottle, that he must, he must answer at our beck and call, that the sovereign Lord of the universe must do precisely what we say? That is to presume that we are in a greater place than he. I mean, even parents do not give their children everything they want, when they want it, exactly the way they want it. A good parent at least won't do that. What we need to learn is the fact that God would answer any of our prayers is sheer grace. We do not deserve to have any of our prayers answered. If God never answered any prayer, he would still be just. And I want you to reflect on your life and think of all the times that God did answer your prayers. Think of the times that God didn't intervene. That is grace. That is mercy. Focus on that. Hone on that. And because he is not responding right away to our requests at this moment, just remember God is gracious. Number two, being steadfast in prayer keeps us humble. By coming again and again and again to the throne of grace, it reminds us that we are utterly and totally dependent on God. 
You see, the alternative is to say, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and be self-sufficient and take care of it my way. And when we do that, we demonstrate that we do not need God. We demonstrate that God is, is, is off the charts, that we are in control. But by coming continually to God, he is teaching us dependence. He's teaching us a brokenness. He's teaching us that we are not in control. We're not independent. We're not self-sufficient. It is he is the one who is independent. He is the one who's self-sufficient. He is the one who is sovereign. Thirdly, steadfastness in prayer when we pray continually on something, helps us to filter our prayers. What do I mean by that? Well, James says in chapter 4, verse 1, you know, you have not because you ask not. Why? Because you ask with improper motives. You ask to spend it on your carnal pleasures. Many times our prayers are very self-centered Our prayers are laced in in self and how it affects us and how it affects my life and and the things that are upsetting me and the things that are creating uh, problems for me. And we want God to remove the obstacles. We want God to remove the pain. And we want God to remove the, 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 the trials. And God is saying, I want you in this place right now. You need these trials. You need these difficulties. You need these obstacles because through them I'm sanctifying you. And so in the process of praying continually through something, our prayers become sanctified. And they shift from self-centered prayers with ill-conceived selfish desires to deep-seated, sincere, Christ-exalting prayer. And the only way you get there is through praying continually because you start to look within, you start to reflect your own motives, you start to listen to your own prayers, and you start, God shows you how you may be praying in the wrong way. Fourthly, persistence cultivates patience. By withholding an immediate response, we learn the virtue of waiting upon the Lord. It's something we do not know very well because we live in a society of instant gratification. That's one of the downsides of when I was talking about the iPhone before. Everything is instant gratification, instant knowledge, instant answers, instant this. I want to buy something, I go on Amazon, I click buy today, and it's in the mail, and I get it tomorrow, and I'm upset if I don't get it sooner. We want instant gratification. Long gone are the days where you have to wait for anything. David was told he was a king and he would be the king of Israel and he waited 15 years before he would see the throne in Jerusalem. Moses knew he was called to be the deliverer of Israel. He tried to do it his own way and he had to wait 40 years in obscurity before God could use him to do his will. God's timetable is a lot different than our timetable. I mean, just remember, a thousand, thousand years is, is a day for the Lord. So obviously God's timetable is much different. We, we can't wait 20 minutes. God says, I have all the time in the world. Through the process of waiting on the Lord, God is changing us. He's cultivating us. He's, he's, he's sanctifying us, teaching us patience. It's not always easy, is it? And so this happens when we are persistent in prayer. 
And I want you to realize that being persistent in prayer and waiting on the Lord is not passive. It's not simply being passive and just not, not doing anything and just being sort of like a fatalist. Rather, it's an active, expectant, persistent pressing and pressing into the heart and purposes of the God who loves us. Now, I can go on as to the purposes of why God may not answer right away. But the point of the matter is that we are to be devoted, committed, persistent in our prayer life. And by doing so, we will grow. We will grow in our trust. We will grow in our confidence. And we'll grow in our fellowship with Jesus. Paul also says this, be watchful in prayer. Be watchful in prayer. This was the same exhortation that Christ gave to the apostles when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, that the night he was betrayed, he took after the Last Supper, he took his disciples out in the garden with him. And he says in Mark 14, 30, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What does it mean to watch and pray? What does it mean to be watchful? This word is almost always used in the New Testament in connection with the second coming of Christ. In fact, I want you to look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then, and here's this, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. The term there for be awake is the same to be watchful. It means to be alert, to be awake, to be, and it's the direct opposite of being asleep. And for the disciples, they were falling asleep in the garden. They couldn't keep awake. But spiritually and metaphorically, what it's talking about is we need to live our lives in such a way that we are alert and we're awake to what God is doing around us. That we're alert and awake to the, to, to the realities of life. Now, I'm not trying to sound prophetic or super spiritual, but we should be alert and awake to the times we live in. When you look around you and you see what's happening in the world around us, how, how human society is deteriorating, we're not getting better, we're getting worse. There's, great, there's evil just, just oozing out through society. I hear it every day. You have to be asleep not to notice. And I can tell you there are many people who go to church who are snoozing along. They're fast asleep. They're not aware and alert to what's going on around them. We need to be aware and alert of the spiritual realities around us, the, the, of, the, of Satan working overtime, how he's, how he's even attacking us when we see things going on in our immediate lives and, and, and things breaking down around us. We, we can't look at it as just, well, that's just that person who's offending me. No, we have to see that this is satanic. There's, there's works of, of evil and darkness to destroy us. We need to be alert and awake to that. But moreover, we need to be alert and awake to the reality that Christ could return at any minute. Throughout the New Testament, 
It is constant that the imminent return of Christ is referred to often where the apostles off with a wrong no. Nobody knows that they are out. We should always be prepared for the second coming of Christ. I do not buy any eschatological system that has to have me check off a list before Christ returns. Well, Christ can't return yet because the temple wasn't built in Jerusalem, or Christ can't return yet because the red heifer hasn't appeared, or Christ cannot return because we haven't reached the golden messianic age yet. If that's the case, then Christ is far off. But we should be living every day as if Christ can come at any moment. That's the alertness, that's the awakeness, the sobriety that God wants us to have. That's the kind of way we should pray. We should pray with that alertness, pray with that sobriety, pray with the sense, oh Lord, not looking for his coming, but looking over ourselves. Am I ready to meet you? Am I ready for you to come? God can call you tomorrow through death and you could be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Are you ready to meet Christ? That's the watchfulness, the alertness in which we ought to pray. That should, that should cover our prayer life and, and define our prayer life, that watchfulness. And finally, thanksgiving. I don't think it's superfluous to remind us of how important it is that our prayers are bathed with gratitude and thankfulness. If we had just come to God saying, give me this and give me that, without saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all the good in my life. Thank you for loving me so much. Thank you for the past blessings, the present blessings, and thank you for the future blessings. It demonstrates a posture of humility before God. In thanking God, we strengthen our hope and faith, and as a result, strengthen our prayers. There's much to be thankful for. First and foremost, we should be thankful to God for him being God. Thankful for who he is. Thankful for his divine perfections, his attributes, for his holiness, for his righteousness, for his sovereignty, for his justice, for his goodness, for his forgiveness. To be thankful for his wrath. To be thankful for the gospel. To be thankful that God would save a sinner such as I. Why throughout all of humanity would God choose me? Would God open my eyes and reveal his son to me? Thank you Jesus. It's humbling. Thank you God for putting me in a place of life where I am. You're living in one of the wealthiest countries in in the world and in history. You have all the resources you could ever imagine here where we live. And rather than complain every day about it, and it's very easy to do, just remember how privileged you are. Remember that there are people now, there are children scrounging through garbage looking for their next meal in developing countries They're so hungry that their stomach is distended from gas and hunger. Just remember when you do not think you have any clothes to wear, there are people who literally have no clothes to wear and they're picking through garbage and tying soda bottles to their shoes, to their feet for shoes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you have a sound mind. Thank you that you're not in a straitjacket somewhere. 
Thank you, God, that I have my health. Thank you, I have my family. I have so much to be grateful for. But just don't say amen to me. Get on your knees and absolutely, positively confess and articulate these things to him. It is good for your soul. Just to show you how much electronics have messed me up. I have a paper sermon here. I don't have my iPad today. You know what I'm doing? I'm trying to scroll. I'm trying to scroll the paper. Prayer is an awesome privilege. We get to communicate to God. We need to bring our requests and make them known to him. Here's the good news. God loves when we seek him and ask him for things. God loves it. God doesn't get annoyed and pestered by us. He's not like the unrighteous king who gets bothered. God loves when we come to him consistently and persistently in prayer. God wants us to ask him for things. And God wants to give us all good things. John Piper says this, God's will is that we, his creatures, Ask him for things. It is not just his will, it is his delight. He loves to ask us for things. Proverbs 15, 8 says this, the prayer of the upright is his delight. And so God is eager to hear our prayers and he's eager to respond to them. He says in Isaiah 65, 24, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. God desires to be gracious to us. He delights to be gracious to us. In fact, in one portion of Isaiah, it, t- it shows that God will take special steps to see to it that he is constantly badgered. And I say that with reverence, but look at Isaiah 62. 6 through 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. And they will never keep silent. God has appointed the watchmen. And they will not keep silent. You who remind the Lord. Listen to this. Take no rest for yourselves. And give him no rest. Until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. Give God no rest. God delights in our prayers. Amen. Finally, on the flip side of this, Paul asks the church to pray for him. He says in verse 3, at this same time, pray also for us. Who's us? Timothy, Aristarchus, Epaphras, those who are in prison with him. Luke and Demas, those who are part of his entourage at the moment. He's saying, pray for us. Pray for my team. And what is he praying for? He prays, says, pray for an open door for the word. Pray that God would open a door for us to the word, for the word of God. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul's in jail. He's in prison. He says, I'm in prison because of the gospel. What would, what would be my prayer request if I was writing to the church? Pray that I would get out of prison as soon as possible. I don't like it here. He's not praying for that. He's not asking for prayer to get out of jail. He's asking for prayer that God would open a door for the word, for the gospel. 
Paul is so sold out for Christ. He's so sold out for the kingdom. All he could think about is the advancement of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love this terminology that, that God would open a door and I think it's instructive for us because throughout the scripture this phrase is used often to show the sovereignty of God in preparing the way for the gospel to go forward. In Acts 14.27 when Paul and Barnabas give a testimony to the church of Antioch of their missionary work it says they arrived and gathered at the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians 2, 12-13, Paul recounts his time in Troas to preach the gospel, and he says, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And we're told who opens these doors in Revelation 3, 7, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts that no one opens. Hallelujah. We need to be reminded in all our evangelistic efforts and all our mission efforts, we need to pray that God would open the doors. You do not go to an evangelism event downtown and just go about your business. You pray, God, open doors for the word. Open the doors that no man can, can, can open and shut the doors no man can shut. Pray every day that God would open a door for you to have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Pray for our missionaries that God would open doors for them. Pray for the Grace and Truth Church that God would open doors for the word to go out to others who've never heard. This is the way we ought to pray. Because we're acknowledging, and this is why I said there's no one who's truly an Arminian, because Someone who's even an Arminian says, God, work, move upon the heart of my loved one who doesn't know the Lord. They're acknowledging God must open the door. There must be a provenient work of grace in order to prepare the person to receive from Christ. And finally, Paul says to pray for clarity in his preaching. Guys, I'm going to ask you a question today. I'm going to ask you a favor. Pray for me. Pray for Pastor Paul. Pray for Anthony. Whoever is preaching at Grace and Truth Church, pray that God would give us clarity in preaching. If Paul needed prayer to be clear in his preaching, how much more do I need your prayers? Please pray for me. Pray for me every week that God would make clear when I declare the gospel. And I say this because not enough pastors acknowledge the need to be clear. I sit in some sermons and I say, I have no idea what that guy just said. Charles Spurgeon said this, Christ said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He goes on to say, some preachers put the food so high that neither sheep nor lambs can reach it. They seem to have read the text, feed my giraffes. It was R.C. Sproul who once said, I disguise my ignorance with fancy words. If I use words that no one else understands, they at least will think I understand what I'm talking about even if I don't. Preaching is not just about showing how much knowledge we have, but it's being able to communicate with the audience before you. 
Not too high that people can't understand what you're saying. Not too low that it's simplified. But being able to speak in the vernacular, to being able to speak in a language that is clear and understandable and perceptible to your audience. I pray every time I preach, Holy Spirit, give me clarity. We desperately need to pray for each other and those who are in the pulpit and who are preaching. Let me conclude. There's no doubt we need revival in our churches today. There's no doubt we need revival in our nation. But I can tell you historically and biblically speaking, there is never revival that is not preceded by commitment to prayer by God's people. Praying continually is not so much about quantity as it is quality. God wants to hear from us. He wants to know our hearts. And he wants to answer our prayers, but he wants to see his people call upon his name. Because God is glorified when we seek him. And he is honored when he answers our prayers. Let me give you a few simple applications here into how we could have a more robust prayer life. When and where should we pray? And I want you to think of this. Because I answered this already, but praying is not so much where and when, but it's a state of mind. It means that, that we should always be ready to pray and ready to approach the throne of grace and be in communion with him. But at the same time, we need to set apart specific times of prayer. In Daniel 6.10, it tells us that three times a day, it was his habit to pray before God. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's a good pattern. Psalm 119, 164 says, seven times a day I will bring my praise before the Lord. I don't know what works for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's one or two times, but whatever it is, may it be a quality time. And it's not about how many hours you pray. It's not I prayed for seven hours today. I wouldn't see what you would know what to say for seven hours. What I might get caught up in if I pray for seven hours is what Jesus tells us not to do is get caught up in vain repetition. Just repeating and regurgitating words over and over and over is not prayer. God concerns himself with the heart of the prayer. He concerns himself that the prayer is, is, is not so much an eloquent prayer, but it's a prayer from the heart, and it's a prayer directly to God like you would speak to me. Right? So, you know, so often I see people, they just cry out God's name over and over and over when they pray. Is that the way you would talk to me? Would you come up to me and say, hey, Bob, I saw that you were in the pulpit today, Bob, and I know that you're going to go downstairs and eat, Bob, and I know that afterwards, can you take me to the store, Bob? Oh, by the way, Bob, can you um, also uh, uh, give me a book? Bob, oh, Bob, can you please uh, sit down? You wouldn't talk to me that way. Why is it when we talk to, God, to, to the Lord, to God, we just we go on and on in vain repetition? Let's not multiply words. Let's pray with clarity, with conviction and purpose. God's not interested in vain repetition. And finally, how do we pray? How should we pray? What should we pray for? I think John Piper gives us a good illustration. He talks about praying in concentric circles. And when he says concentric circles, you start with the first circle around yourself and work your way out. Piper says this. He says, 
He says, consider praying in concentric circles from your own soul outward to the whole world. This is my regular practice. I pray from my soul first, not because I'm more deserving than others, but because if God doesn't awaken and strengthen and humble and fill my soul, I can't pray for anybody else's. So I plead with the Lord every morning for my own soul's perseverance and purification and power, and then he prays outwardly. Start your day praying first before God that he would help you, that he would strengthen you, that he would sanctify you. Then pray for your family. Pray for your immediate blood family. Pray for your your husbands, your wives, your children, your parents, your grandparents, whoever, your brothers, your sisters. And then from there, the next circle goes out. Pray for those of grace and truth. Pray for the leadership of grace and truth. Pray for the members of grace and truth. You have petitions and requests that come in our weekly news, monthly newsletter. Pray then for other gospel-affirming churches in the air, for our global missions. And then as you start working your way throughout all there, then you could pray for kings and for those in power and for magistrates and for the, all of the yuckiness in our country today. But work your way outward from Jerusalem to Samaria to the outermost parts of the world. Start with Jerusalem. Start with yourself and work your way out. There's so much I could say on this topic. But it's a challenge not only for you, not only for the church of Colossae, it's a challenge for me. Let us all be more committed, more devoted to prayer. Let's Let's just humble our hearts before him to be committed, to be watchful, to be thankful, to be purposeful and intentional about how we pray and who we pray for to the glory and honor of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for your word. It's instructive. It's eternal. It's good. And you have spoken to us today. I pray, Father God, that we would be people of prayer, not just because we have to be, but because we want to be. Spur a desire in us, Lord, to commune more with you. Oh, Lord, I pray that our communion would not just be vain repetitions, not just the multiplying of words, but, Lord, just a humble reliance upon you, that as we wait upon you, as we persist in prayer, and as we... Oh, Lord, think of the greater kingdom of God, that our hearts would be spurred on to pray for one another, to pray for your kingdom. Oh, Lord, I pray that today, that for those of you, those here who heard and do not know Jesus Christ, who've heard the gospel, that they would be believers, that their prayers may be heard. For we know, O oh Lord, you do not listen to the prayers of the wicked, but only to the righteous and those who have made righteous in Christ. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that for those who do not know you, that they would have a loving, saving knowledge, that their eyes would be opened and their hearts would be renewed and they would be born of the Spirit. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.